Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit and they shall be created. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. First, a word of explanation about the prayer that we will say it at every conference to ask the Holy Spirit to bless the retreat and those of us who are trying to pray that he'll renew in us the fire of thy love and that he'll lead each of us the way he wants us to go in the future. I sit down because as we are being recorded this retreat will one day be going around the world and will reach all sorts of strange places and strange people. I myself have had that experience of finding people who heard my tapes in prison and also any number who hear the tapes, mine or others, when they're sick in bed. One of the most moving retreats I had were for the sisters belonging to Mother Seton, where tapes were played in the top floor of the convent, largely reserved for sisters who are very old and often senile even. And the only link they had, they can't read, they're getting old like we are, and tapes meant everything to them. And therefore, I would like them to feel that we are praying for them, though we don't know them, and that they, therefore, share in a way in the retreat we're making here. But mind you, my job would be to speak to you here. I, the recording is quite accidental. When you come on retreat, it's the people sitting in front of the father giving the retreat who are his concern. Cardinal Newman referred to himself as an occasional preacher. But by that, he didn't mean that he didn't preach often. What he meant was he preached for a special occasion. That after all, a priest or yourselves making the retreat, this is something peculiar to ourselves. And therefore, it would be wrong to say something that might help somebody in Australia, if there is anything that could help Australians, <laughs> um, uh, in, a, say, 20 years' time that our concern is here. But if others gate crash and listen in, the word of God travels wherever God wants it to go. So having said that in rather a pompous way, I would like now to say how deeply moved I am to come back to this extraordinary retreat. I had one last year, just the same. All I knew that the people coming were friends of Father Bassett's. I don't recognize any of you, and I don't think I, you're all that attractive. <laughs> uh, but if we're pals, we're pals. Uh, but it, is, it was last year was a riot. And because I didn't know anyone, and they didn't know anyone, but we all got together, and I did feel, thanks to the cooperation of everyone concerned, it did go so well and was so very happy. And we all went away, and all during the year, I carried the memory of being here with you. Now this year, of course, I've met the two great men, I can't pronounce their names, who got this up. 
They're a remarkable pair, and one's on crutches, and, and the, they managed, I don't know, with the help of the secretary, who's sadly not here, Sarah, who ought to be canonized, um, uh, that um, uh, all these hundreds of people turned up. I don't know who's here. I have very intimate friends who are coming, including Bob and Pat. Bob made a retreat with me here with the FBI. There's another FBI agent on the course, so look out. <laughs> Bob made a retreat. FBI retreat was marvelous. They put all their revolvers down on the table and took out their rosaries. <laughs> and, and they had a hell of a lot to pray about. So Bob and Pat are here, and Peggy's here, who means everything to me. And I don't know whether they've got here, uh, but Carol and Pete from Long Island are here. I hope they're here, or they will be. And all these people, and many more, from Washington, from um, Long Island, from New York, people who've just come. And, of course, there are those, I, when I speak to them and shake hands, then I do know them. But I, I've forgotten all the names. So it is a really a most wonderful experience for me. Last year I thought and was certain I would never come back. Uh, this year I'm even more certain, because I've... <laughs> I've gone rather slightly senile. I live alone, I have for years, but I've got to the stage now where I put the hot water in one mug, the instant coffee in another mug, and drank the hot water without noticing the difference. <laughs> and when that happens, then you go and see a priest. <laughs> so therefore, I do want you to feel uh, that the retreat um, is in a way special. I came here in 1958 for the first time. That was the year when this house began. I didn't give a retreat then. But it's very moving for me to come back having given any number of retreats here. One of the most marvelous ever uh, to the Knights of St. John. The, they're the equivalent of the Knights of Columbus for the colored people of Maryland. I never saw a better retreat they bought eight deacons to start with. An absolute orgy of readings went on. Uh, but, but it really was, they were wonderful people. Maryland is a very exceptional place for me. As I said last year at the opening talk, when we can only say, uh, introducing things, Maryland for me means three very different things. First of all, my grandmother came from Baltimore. I have an aunt buried in Greenmount Cemetery. She died without the priest. She was a convert. Monsignor Cody took me to Greenmount Cemetery and I climbed over all those old stones, looking like false teeth, and blessed my Aunt, Aunt Martha's grave. I've not heard from her since, but I'll be meeting her soon. <laughs> but my grandmother was a Maryland person and very closely related to Robert E. Lee. So for me, I've always heard about Maryland. But then secondly, Maryland means everything to me uh, because of the history that the church in the eastern seaboard, England did many bad things for America, uh, but we did bring you the faith. The persecuted English Catholics turned up here. The, and all these little churches round about and the whole history of Maryland right up to Baltimore 
and St. Elizabeth Seton, they were all came from a WASP society. That Father White, who we must think about very much, and all the, the fathers who manned these little missions like Leonardstown and St. Mary's and St. Thomas Manor and lived here in terrible hardship, that they really, in a way, brought the faith. They were persecuted themselves, had to leave their own country. They brought the faith here. And that's why I find of all the places you can make a retreat in the United States, this is the most moving. First of all, I've never known any place so quiet. Honestly, wherever you go in the world, you'll never be so quiet as you are on the Potomac. The Potomac does nothing at all to start with. I've never seen a ship go either up or down. No aeroplanes ever goes across the sky. You don't hear a motor car or a telephone. You hear nothing. Today we passed three deer as we drove in. You can go out and catch one if you want. It's the most remarkably quiet place and a beautiful house. And that's why I do feel very thrilled for myself, I can make a retreat better here than anywhere. So Maryland means a lot for me because of these dear little churches that have been here or rebuilt. They've, the sites were occupied since the middle of the 17th century. And then, of course, lastly, I do like this because I am a Jesuit and St. Ignatius, after all, was my founder and he invented the idea of making a retreat. I would very much like that you would remember and follow out what he said. After all, he was a convert soldier. He was a man of nearly 30 when he found God, as they say. Up to then, he only found girls, as far as I can make out. <laughs> and he was lying in bed and wounded and had his leg rebroken to get it, just to get it straight again not for God's sake, but that he could dance without limping. Now that I'm developing a limp, I don't know what to do about it. But Ignatius was an extraordinary man who came to love God by spiritual reading. He's the only saint I know who was converted by spiritual reading. He read the gospel and he read the lives of the saints. And then when he decided eventually to do something about it, he carried a great notebook with him where he wrote down what he found worked for him. He carted this book to Palestine and back, and eventually, as a layman, he gave his first retreats, relying on the experiences, good and bad, methods of prayer that didn't work, fasting too much, all that goes with conversion, he suddenly produced the most practical way of becoming holy. As Addison Pierce, the great Spanish professor, said, the exercises of St. Ignatius are the only book that you can't read, you have to do, because it lays down the laws for praying. And that's why I'm very anxious that our retreat should be based on a very sensible program. Now, Ignatius never said you couldn't make a retreat in a short time. He did say you could, an hour and a half a day uh, would make the exercises, if you did them for 30 days. He said you could make them at home. But he laid down that for most people, the advantages of leaving home were great. Because you get away from the telephone, for one thing. 
he didn't have it in his day, that's why he was holy. And the, the, and the odd thing is that um, you get away from the children, you get away from postage, you get away from groceries and all the things that tie you down. It's a real relief to be free. He suggested that. The points he made that I find so moving is that the first thing I've got to do in a retreat is to dispose myself. That God will never speak to me, and you can get that in the gospel, God will never give me faith unless I'm quiet. You see this in the Olympic Games where all these chaps who throw javelins and they all stand still and say three Hail Marys before they start running about. They've got to get it balanced. We've also got that extraordinary thing where you dispose of refuse. You've got, in America, disposable bottles. Most of us have got a good number of those we should throw away. You've got also disposing of your property when you write a will. And the one I like best is disposing yourself to sleep. It always makes me laugh that because as you get older it takes longer and longer to, to start even getting to bed. I've told you, said it before in tapes and things, I've known one lady um, who started about 8.30 and didn't get to sleep till 2. <laughs> Why? Because she first of all had to rattle the back door six times to be sure it was locked. Then she had a cookie. Then she switched on the television to see what the time was and watched Johnny Carson till 3. <laughs> and you suddenly find that if she wasn't ready then, she had to rattle the back door again then. I had a man who told me he could only sleep if he got into bed on the left-hand side at an angle of 45. If he didn't do that, he had to get out again. And then you've got pillows just to, to get ready. And it's a, an operation. Now, Ignatius knew that. The first thing Ignatius stresses is that I've got to make the retreat for myself. The priest can't give me one. There's no such thing as Father gave me a retreat. Because it's, spiritual exercises are like jogging, You've got to do them yourself. No way of, can you hire somebody to jog for you. So therefore, the first thing is, I have to decide what I'll do. The next thing Ignatius stressed so very vividly was, you don't come on retreat to get knowledge. That reading encyclopedias or magazines or all those things doesn't make you holy. It's only holy when you savor them. And therefore, to read a lot of books, and we're only here for such a short time, to read a lot of books doesn't help at all. The Gospel alone, we haven't got through that yet, or the Bible. Or you get one book, it may not even be by a Catholic, it might be by a pagan. Marcus Aurelius has helped me for many retreats. But you've got to go slowly and savor it. Then Ignatius makes the point that some people go quickly and some go slowly. Dear St. Thomas More, who we'll think about in this retreat, I mean, he lays down so very clearly that some people are so fussy that they take too long over their prayers. And others hurry. The great thing is to get a mean. And as you get older, you have to keep on doing that for yourself. So therefore, all these things, one point that strikes me as a priest, at this now, 40 years I've been giving retreats all over the world, is how different we all are. Although we're all exactly the same and the gospel can be read by any of us, and even my conferences might ring a bell to some of you, not likely, but it might, 
But at the same time, what's extraordinary is we all can share the same views, but we're totally different. I'm a different na nationality to you. And some of you may not be American at all. The strange thing is that I know several people here who aren't Catholic. Down in Louisiana, I had a retreat once where 19 Protestants made the retreat. So I had to be very careful what I said. <laughs> but, I mean, anybody can make a retreat. One of the best writers on the spiritual exercises was a high church Episcopalian. So, therefore, we are all different religions. We're different ages. Some of us have got hearing aids. Some haven't. Some ought to have. So that we don't know what's going to happen there. Some of us are sisters in disguise. Watch those. And some of us are stupid, and some of us are history is my subject. It may not be yours. And so whatever you are, it, only you can make the retreat the way you want. Now, I did ask Father, so, the Father's so kind here, and so cooperate, uh, that we'd make the program as optional as possible. Because I know, for example, that we're having Mass this evening. Now, I've been to retreat houses where the poor chaps arrive worn out, in Chicago especially. They, they've arrived miles out. They've had about five martinis on the way. And then they suddenly find they've got to go to communion and, and sing hymns they don't know. <laughs> so I, Now, other people have promised to go to Mass during Lent, are heartbroken when they have to miss it, and so for them, Mass this evening would be good. We're having, we've cancelled one talk, so tomorrow we'll have four talks, which is not too long. I try to not go longer than exactly half an hour because of the recording. So therefore, uh, the um, conferences will be half an hour. The rest of the day ought to be yours. When I come here to Faulkner, that day I went to my room and sat in my armchair for an hour just rejoicing in the total silence. For years I prayed lying down, and if you lie down, then you want quite a different retreat program to if you stand up. <laughs> we'll talk about all that tomorrow, but everybody's different. And getting old, yes, your prayers are very different from when you were young. Very soon you suddenly find you can't say many prayers. So therefore, it's most different for all of us, so the program is optional. We've got this lovely piece of The Man for All Seasons that the organizers managed to obtain. I've seen it played in Minnesota at the end of every retreat for a year. It's a marvelous scene of Moore's trial, and for some people that would be a wonderful break in the retreats. For others it would be a disaster. They shouldn't go. People must pick and choose. The only things you can miss all my conferences and won't worry me. I'd like a few people in the front row to cheer me on, uh, but, uh, but there's no need to go to conferences. They're all means to an end. The end is that when God wants to speak to me, I am disposed. I did suggest, because it's so moving here, uh, that in, in the afternoons, at uh, two times where you would just have time either to go to the Carmelite convent at La Plata and make the Stations of the Cross there, it's a very moving place. They're the first Carmelites who ever came to America, 
from Belgium at the French Revolution. They stayed there for a while, and then John Carroll moved them to Baltimore. And it's only recently that their old convent, which was in ruins, has been restored by another lot of Carmelites, who are now there all enclosed in the woods. You can't peep in or they'll shoot you. Uh, but the little original convent's there, the stations are there, and wonderful old tombs of the Maryland people of the past. I went to make the station several times in other times I've been in this house. And St. Thomas Manor on the other side is wonderful. I went there this afternoon. Father very kindly took us there. It's just the same, beautiful. And the big barn at the back has got tobacco hanging in it, so if you'd like to bring me a piece, I'll be very happy. These two alone are where the church started, and so you may well find that that would be a better retreat than sitting in your room, but another person, no. So therefore, that's all I would like to say about the retreat, excepting that obviously I'm only one man, and I can't see everybody. I have put on my door, if you can find it, a poster where you can sign your name for 15 minutes, but unfortunately, even if I filled the whole thing up, I'd still only see about 10 people. Luckily, the fathers are here, and they'll help for confessions if you want to go. That's up to you. But I'd love to see my friends or anyone who's got anything they want to talk about. You've every right, and yet the only thing, a half a day and a half retreat's not long enough. Anybody, if they want to, can put their initials there, but I would ask you to think about it. We'll meet each other, sure enough, round the house. But if you want to come, you must sign on, otherwise there'll be disaster. So now I'm going to end with a very wonderful text which will set the pace for the whole week. I want to make this retreat entirely on what it means to be a layman or a laywoman in the modern world. Sooner or later, in the next 20, 30 years, the church will once more be entirely in the hands of the laity. And if we want to model as to how we should conduct ourselves, the one and only saint who chose not to be a priest and became deliberately a layman and married twice, he will tell us how the laity ought to pray, how you treat your family, and do you go into public life? And what happens if you do? Thomas More is unique in that, that he chose deliberately, after much thought, to marry. Married twice, ended up with enormous, his own four children, and his grandchildren, and adopted children, and the man for all seasons. He's the only saint I know who tells you about going to daily mass, how to pray when you're busy at work. He was, after all, an attorney. And you're half of your attorneys. That's what makes this retreat so frightening. <laughs> so, but this is the sentence I want you to note. In all ages, more or less, there is a new school of thought rising up under the eyes of an older school. And probably in all ages, the men of the old school regard with some little anxiety the men of the new school. That was written by Professor Seabohm on writing about Moore at Oxford. That in every age you get an old school and then you get in every age rising up. Cardinal Newman had that very clearly in his long life. He alone of all that lot 
was with the new school, and yet eventually at the end of his life didn't become a Pharisee trying to cling to traditions. Thomas More was very much in that school, had that trouble. And so therefore we have enormous troubles ahead of us today. God knows what's going to happen with all our new inventions. But Thomas More lived in an age just as frightening, I think more frightening and with more opportunities than we have. First of all, Constantinople fell when he was about 18 years old. No, he was before he was 18. And with the fall of Constantinople, the whole of Greek culture, Plato and Aristotle, all the books and things came to Europe. Up to that time, Greek wasn't known. But now Latin and Greek, all that we know of the classical education, which went on till our time, is gone now, this was a revolution in itself. Further, not only did Constantinople fall, but the Turks got right up to Vienna and right round the whole of the Mediterranean. And in Spain, they were defeated. Otherwise, they were five times as numerous as the Western world. So talk about a threat of war. There's nothing that's coming out of the Kremlin that wasn't equally embarrassing to the people of his day. He knew that very well. And then, marvel of marvels, the new world was discovered, your world. Far more important than getting to the moon. I suppose one day, in a few millenniums, the Jesuits will open a college on Saturn or somewhere. <laughs> but up to now, all these shuttles and things haven't got us very far. When you can't even get through on the telephone. So, so I believe all our sort of silicone chips, I'm not sure any of these were half so sensational as when a completely new world, they didn't know how big it was, they all started out. Thomas More's own brother-in-law set out with a lot of boats to go to Newfoundland. And More himself was, the new world was a tremendous thing to the old world. And of course Columbus sailed when More was at Oxford. Finally, and even more startling, printing was discovered. Up to that time, every book had to be written. St. Thomas More's own brother was a scribe. You, you hired him to write a letter for you. That if, the, the only books you could read were written out by the monks, so you could only read holy books. And then when they discovered printing in the middle of that century, and all of a sudden printing presses and pamphlets and versions of the Bible poured out. Thomas More owned two printing presses himself by the time he died. And of course his nephew, Rastel, uh, was the most wonderful printer who printed his More's works. So his was a totally new world starting up and he was with it. He believed in it. And yet, so he got the battle that we're going to have between the old world constipated was clinging to the fathers and tradition and the modern world. After all, Moore was the very first man to educate women. His daughters were the best educated women in Europe. And he deliberately did that. So on many points, he had just as worrying a life as we have. That's what I'd like you to pray about before we go to bed tonight, in your own life with your children, with the neighbors. There's always a, a jet set wanting to change things, and there are always people like the Pharisees who didn't want to change things. 
I had the honor last night of having supper with Monsignor Tracy Ellis, who's certainly one of the best church historians. He agreed with me and was very sad about it, the hatred he sees in the Christian body today between conservatives and liberals. I've seen it. I've seen the most terrible hatred on both sides. He maintained that he thought the right wing were much the more objectionable. Well, the Pharisees were on the right wing. They were all Republicans to a man. <laughs> but it's very interesting that I've seen the same terrible rows in the liturgy about priests, about liberating nuns, about what we can read, on every teeny-weeny little bit of the church and between the churches. And so it isn't at all a remote thing. Now we've got in my country, and you're going to have it, you have got it, about the H-bomb lot. We've got all these nutty women sleeping permanently in the hedges. <laughs> Led by a monsignor who was at school, the same school as I was at. But I mean, we don't know what's going to happen next. So I feel Thomas More's the man who will tell us. And with that, I'll end. We ought to pray tonight. Mass, if you want. Uh, uh, silence, all I would ask there is, like we would demand in a motel, that there should be quiet in the house. Nobody will go back to a motel if they were kept awake or disturbed during the day by noise. It is a great thing to keep silence to pray, but on the other hand, that rests with you all. If you're a husband and wife, if you're two friends, you don't have to just stare at each other rudely, for the love of God, uh, but I'd like you to stare lovingly outside the house. So that's what we're going to think about. Tomorrow morning, we'll start thinking entirely about ourselves in the modern world, how we pray. And with it, thinking about ourselves, I'll suggest to you how Thomas More prayed, and then we'll go on from there to his political life, to his life with his family, and eventually to what he wrote, like Utopia, which I'll say some more about at the next talk.